Hi, Ada and Katie. So I recently learned that DC Comics was finally going to put my favorite run of Doom Patrol back into print for the first time since it was released in single issues during the early 90s. The series was written by an out trans woman and is about a group of weirdo outcasts who struggle to live their lives in a hostile world while coming to terms with their new identities as superheroes. In just over 20 issues, writer Rachel Pollock took one of these strangest superhero teams of all time and turned their subtext-filled comic book into one of the queerest things I have ever read. And she did all that in an era where comics were allegedly not that political, which I think is pretty fucking dope. I am Jacqueline Klein, a comic book reviewer, retailer, and host of the G.I. Joe podcast, The Other Half. All while doing so, I am also a queer trans woman, and my pronouns are she, her. I am Katie Coleman, a playwright and composer, a queer trans woman, and my pronouns are she, her. And I am Ada Rhodes Short, an activist, robot brain scientist, and queer trans woman whose pronouns are she, her. This is Totally Trans, Searching for the Trans Canon, where we talk about some of the most well-known figures from film, literature, and media, and tell you why we think they deserve to be part of the trans cultural canon. This week, I'm going to tell you why Cliff Steele, aka Robot Man from the Doom Patrol, is totally trans. The Doom Patrol made their first appearance in the 80th issue of My Greatest Adventure, which was published in 1963, written by Arnold Drake and Bob Haney, and featured the art of Bruno Premiani. Their book was notable for featuring some incredibly strange villains, a lot of interpersonal drama, and ending in the heroic sacrifice of the entire team. Though they've existed for over 60 years as a group, the Doom Patrol of the late 80s and early 90s was a very different beast than their Silver Age roots might imply. While they've always been dubbed the world's strangest heroes due to the curse-like nature of their quote-unquote gifts causing them intense alienation and slash or trauma, the individual best known for ratcheting up the weird factor and the queer factor would be none other than comics' favorite non-binary wizard icon, Grant Morrison. Morrison took over the book on issue number 19 during what would be considered the latter half of volume 2, and wrote until issue number 63, where the book was handed off to Rachel Pollock, an out trans woman who wrote much of what we'll be discussing today. We started our read on issue number 30, which features Cliff Steele at one of his lowest points, and touches on what will basically be the bones of our argument. Here, Robot Man finds himself deep within the underground, a complex construct of a teammate's psyche, and face-to-face with one of her most dangerous personalities, the knife-handed misandrist Black Annis. In order to pass her and reach the problem that has befallen his friend, Cliff must profess for her to hear that he is no man. He is simply a brain trapped inside of a robot body that is devoid of sex. A robot body that Cliff doesn't feel is his, and hell, that doesn't even represent who he is. We skipped over the bulk of it in this reading, but much of Morrison's run consists of Cliff having a strange and difficult relationship with his peers and his body, the latter of which is stolen from him, changed without his consent, and ultimately even his brain is destroyed. The only thing that remains is a series of floppy disks containing his mind and personality. We flash forward in our reading by 30-something issues to number 70, where Rachel Pollock introduces us to the new Doom Patrol. In addition to Cliff Steele, we are introduced to George and Marion, a disembodied couple wrapped from head to toe in magic bandages, Dorothy Spinner, a 14-year-old girl with the face of an ape who is capable of manifesting her imagination and warping reality around her, Dr. Niles Calder, the head of the team, strategist and mastermind, 
former bastard who betrayed his friends, currently literal disembodied head sitting on a tray of ice. And finally, Kate Godwin, a.k.a. Coagula, a trans superhero with the power to manipulate an object's state of matter. From her point of introduction onward, Coagula is unapologetically queer and authentic in a way that most of the team can't help but gravitate to. While she and Cliff initially bond over their shared annoyance with Niles, Cliff is mostly too lost in his general malaise to pay much attention beyond that. Until the issue Bootleg Steel, that is, which sends Cliff and Kate to investigate a company that has managed to steal Niles' files on Cliff's brain, and are attempting to mass-produce him. Forced to grapple with the fact that he no longer even has a small connection to his former humanity, Cliff falls further and further into his depressive episode until Kate gives an impassioned speech about humanity and identity that pulls him back from the brink. And woe be unto the brain-stealing capitalist fucks who get in the way of an angry Cliff steal. From that moment onwards, the two are intensely close, and it's pretty obvious that Cliff is starting to catch feelings. Kate doesn't realize her transness has managed to slip under Cliff's radar, so George and Marion step in to spare them both the awkwardness. Almost immediately, Cliff lashes out. After all, Kate has something he was never allowed to have. Bodily autonomy. Unfortunately, there's little time for explanations or apologies because a villainous plot interrupts our superhero soap opera, requiring the Doom Patrol to leap into action. Cliff ends up putting himself between Kate and an incoming rocket, which destroys the robot body Niles built for him the final time. Refusing to heed any warnings, she rushes out to collect Cliff's memories so that he can be put back together. This time, though, the two of them ensure that he's allowed to design his own body. The whirlwind battle that follows involves Cliff and Kate fusing their minds and bodies together into one single entity, and only through managing their traumas and helping one another to move on, are they and the Doom Patrol able to save the world from an evil military-industrial plot to stop the world from being able to change and grow. And even readers at the time were able to pick up on some of the incredibly queer shit this book was putting in front of them. One of my absolute favorite parts of being able to revisit the physical issues was my ability to read the letters to the editor section and being able to see like a little time capsule of real queer folks talking about their relationship to the material. I grabbed one of my favorites from the issues that we read because it seems super relevant to the discussion. And it reads... Dear Doom Patrollers, wow, Grant Morrison turned Doom Patrol into DC's queer secret weapon years ago, but it's never been so out of the closet before. I love the way Rachel Pollock is using the format of a surreal superhero comic to tell some really warm, hilarious stories about sex, and I especially love the explorations of the relationship between the quote-unquote deviant outcast heroes and the quote-unquote normal people they know they have to protect. As an out gay man who works and lives primarily in the quote-unquote straight world, I often identify with Cliff, wondering why I bother trying to deal with straight people when so many of them are so homophobic. On my good days, though, I try to be more like George and Marion, who just try to do what feels right for us and let the rest of the world take care of itself. Very wise and very important for people to hear. The deviant superhero slash gay and lesbian analogy is so obvious, I'm almost surprised no one's explored it in this depth before. Grant Morrison's campy sensibility began the process, but it hasn't been until Vertigo started that Pollock and Peter Milligan have really been able to push the boundaries of what a mainstream comic can do. Every month, I am both startled and delighted to read a comic book that's really aimed at intelligent, fun, life-and-sex-loving people with open minds and hearts. Thank you for this new Doom Patrol. And that was in 1993! <laughs> 1993! Okay, so, uh, let's start the same way we normally start by talking what about what our relationship to Doom Patrol is and how we first encountered it as a thing. 
Jack, since you are a guest, would you like to go first? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so basically, uh, my first encounter with the Doom Patrol was, and this is another reason why I am such a huge fan of like doing what I do, is I had no idea where to begin to get into comic books. And I expressed to one of my coworkers, and this is before they were my coworkers, that I wanted to read a story about queer superheroes. That is an unfortunately super rare thing, uh, even these days. Um, and so what I got was being recommended Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol. Um, and honestly, that book is, despite the fact that very little of it, very little of it is explicit, it's incredibly queer. And so pretty much like it was handed to me by somebody who knew a tremendous amount about DC continuity, and they were just like, oh yeah, this is like one of the gayest books you will ever read. Please enjoy it. And I immediately saw myself in it. Like, not just in a lot of the sort of like very obvious parallels, but like Cliff Steele, uh, a notable one. Like, uh, very, very easy for me to place myself into his dysphoria and his relationship with his body and his relationship with the world around him. Uh, what about you, Ada? Oh, do I have to go next? Um, so I think, well, I, so I would have first encountered Doom Patrol when I was working in a comic book shop back when I was like 14 and 15. That would have been uh, like while sorting back issues and occasionally stopping and seeing an interesting cover of mostly Grant Morrison's run and then like reading it a little bit and being like, I have no idea what the hell is going on. And then I read some sections of it. Because I don't think I got was able to get my hands on like a collection of Doom Patrol for my entire teens, but I had a friend who collected the run, so uh, I read some like sections of it, but not the entire run. And it wouldn't have been until like Jack, until I guess you encouraged me to start reading it that I read it and read the Rachel Pollock run, and then went back and I've been reading more of the sections from the uh, DC on DC Universe infinite which is their like online comics reader which is what katie and i both used to read these issues i also guess i skipped over the gerard way run which i ran when that was coming out and i also read like flexman tallow which was like a spinoff of morrison's run but i read it as a graphic novel so yeah i'm also a big fan of the tv show which if the tv show is amazing if you like it i'd highly recommend to read the comics because like it's a pretty it's not a faithful adaption necessarily as far as like thing that happens on the page but i feel like it's a really faithful adaption as far as like spirit of what happens on the page katie what about you i i had a grant morrison period um in college so i didn't read comic books like i did theater and nothing but theater like all the way through high school i didn't read comic books or or watch tv or play video games or anything and then in college i I had friends who would give me stuff. So Grant Morrison's X-Men was like the, I think the first Grant Morrison thing I I read. And um, one of my, one of my friends gave it to me in like, you know, collections, like the little trades or whatever. And so I read that and I was like, okay, well I need to read more stuff that this guy wrote. Um, And I read Doom Patrol illegally on scans on my computer in, uh, in college. I read his and I didn't read Rachel Pollock's, which is wild i don't know why i i didn't read it maybe he didn't have them i don't remember it's so i think for a lot of people rachel pollock's doom patrol kind of sort of like slipped under the radar because uh morrison i mean morrison is a rock star 
um especially in the comics world morrison's written like a bajillion things and like all of them are just as weird and cool as this um and so i think following that act is like really hard um and it's sort of like uh i guess um the who going on after hendrix at woodstock and smashing the shit out of their guitars like uh morrison in this case is like the hendrix and so i think with rachel pollock's first couple of issues which we skipped being a little lackluster i think a lot of people maybe didn't catch like the brilliance of it when she sort of like grew into her own writing the series yeah because um, because we started almost a year into her run right like yeah we like started issues almost yeah. five issues six issues in yeah. yeah okay she started on 63s and we started our reading the issues we read listeners for our, our discussions we read number 30 which is one of morrison's books and by the way morrison now uses they them pronouns yeah. i believe oh, and then um i learned that and like then, t- today when i read the script yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And then Pollock started on number 63, but we started for this read, uh, we read 70 through 79, which cover a few single issues, including like the introduction of Coagula um, through a storyline that is incredibly interesting for a read on of Cliff, specifically as like a trans or transmasculine figure, which is so fascinating. And I'm so excited to talk about more. And I'd highly recommend all of our listeners go read them really quickly, just because I want to gush on Grant Morrison just a teeny bit. So Grant Morrison's book, Super Gods, I recently read. I got it years ago and read like sections, but never read the whole thing. And it's really brilliant. And it's about like sort of the philosophy of comics writing and a little bit of autobiography. But then my favorite Grant Morrison book which is wild because I'm sure everyone will be like, oh, it's going to be X-Men. She's going to say X-Men. It's X-Men. Is uh, All-Star Superman, which is actually like one of my favorite comic books of all time. I don't know. Do you either of you have a favorite Grant Morrison book, even though we're going to spend most of this time talking about Rachel Pollock? I just want to give you both a chance. Um, I love All-Star, Super- All-Star Superman, too. That is so, so good. Um, it, it, it's X-Men. Grant Morrison's X-Men is probably my favorite comic story at all. Maybe. I don't know. It's hard to say. I'm going to go with uh, The Invisibles, um, which was basically the project that Morrison jumped to right after doing Doom Patrol. So it has the vibe that Doom Patrol does, only even fucking weirder. Um, And it's funny because, like, I read the article, like, in 2020 when Morrison basically came out to, like, a comics news journalism thing. Um, And I read the thing and I was like, this is the least surprising thing I have read all year. Because Morrison's mouthpiece character in The Invisibles is, like, uh, well, two characters really, but one is, like, this incredibly sort of, like, effeminate yet still masculine guy named King Mob. And the other one is uh, a trans woman who has a real unfortunate name, but it's it's explained in the book anyway named lord fanny um and they're both basically like morrison's mouthpiece characters in this so it's like yeah no duh no duh that morrison is some stripe of gender queer but yeah, yeah. well and weirdly i actually i got to read the invisibles in high school like i had the trades of the invisibles even though i guess i i got my hands on the invisibles which is fun let's move on from gushing about grant morrison because we could do that for forever uh and instead I want to talk about briefly about Coagula because I think people who have watched the Doom Patrol show or read any Doom Patrol are probably familiar with Cliff Steele slash Robot Man because he's been in every iteration of the Doom Patrol. Every, yeah, yep. like has always been on the Doom Patrol is a man's brain stuck in a robot body. Coagula, though, or Kate Godwin, 
uh, is introduced to us in a bar, speaking with her friends. Uh, we find out she's trans when they zoom in on her put a transsexual lesbian on the Supreme Court pin, a pin that we sell on our T Public store for this podcast. You can get that as merch from us. Uh, I think that's actually one of our first pieces of merch. And we find out she has a power to coagulate things, which kind of just makes them like become solid and clump up or to dissolve things, which just makes them melt. She explains that she thinks her got she got her powers when another Doom Patrol character who's not currently on the team. Ouch, my cat is biting my arm. Uh, another Doom Patrol character not currently on the team named Revis, who is the combination of a man and a woman and a ghost from space. Extremely uh, complicated backstory on Rebus. Incredibly yeah. complicated. I considered briefly putting it in our like sort of lead up to this discussion, but I was like, there's not enough time. I would have to dedicate an entire section to this alone. Yeah. But so Rebus had sex with Coagula as like a trick. Like not a trick as in like a prank, <laughs> like a trick as in Yeah. Uh like was a trick. Like Coagula was doing sex work mm-hmm. um because is written by a trans woman who I don't know, and trans women have never changed Coagula's two stated jobs in this book are sex worker and computer programmer, which is a joke that still holds up. Times have never changed. Um, so, yeah, so has uh, sex with Rebus and then gets uh, magical powers, tries to go join the Justice League after finding out she has magical powers, and they, like, laugh at her and are like, oh, absolutely not. Which is really fucked up, but then also, like, honestly, there's still not a trans woman on the Justice League, I think. So, fuck. I mean, I don't mean to, uh, I don't mean to defend the Justice League, but I feel like Superman would not be cool with that. Especially the Superman of the all-star Superman that we all love so much. Um, this, but this yeah, Batman been... definitely would, would be an asshole. Yeah, this would have been 1993 Justice League, though. So that was still Justice League International. So that's Superman, I don't think, was dead yet. Superman died just around Uh, now, right? If he died, he maybe just died. Yeah. Yeah. It was this year that he died. Yeah. Well, continuity is dumb anyway. Continuity is dumb, and they don't really pay attention to it in Doom Patrol. Yeah. Uh, But this was the beginning of Vertigo, right? Like, this is early Vertigo. This is actually. This is actually the first book to carry the Vertigo uh, imprint, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Rachel Pollock's Doom Patrol, or maybe some of the later issues of Morrison's Doom Patrol gained the Vertigo imprint, I believe. Don't quote me on that. But yeah, um, I'm almost positive that this is the first or one of the first. So it yeah. sort of exists in its own pocket dimension in the DC yeah. universe. But yeah, the Justice League who would have yet laughed her wear like the JLI. I'm assuming it was Guy Gardner. Oh yeah, fuck Guy Gardner. Was there? Guy Gardner, and just yeah. being a fucking dick. Ooh. I've got a uh, really quick anecdote about Guy Gardner. The So, for whatever reason, I read a Guy Gardner comic book when I was, like, seven years old, because somebody probably bought it for me or something. And it was, like, like a, like a, a, um, a mini-series, like, solo run. It was probably right around this time, actually. And in the at the um, on the last page of the of the thing, it was like Guy Gardner's getting kidnapped by aliens. What will happen? Will this happen? A. B. Will this happen? B. C. The aliens give him a sex change, and he changes his name to Guy No More. Fascinating, right? Oh my god! That's and an I ne- Elseworlds book that <laughs> needs to be read. Out. And I never yeah. forgot about that because of reasons. 
Yeah. Oh my god, that's incredible. Yeah. I feel like also not Guy Gardner would have been a a, a less wordy way to put that, but that's yeah, fine. Yeah, true. Yeah, that's amazing. Anywho, so that's the incredibly queer origin of Coagula. What did you? Did either of you have thoughts about Coagula's origin and like have any interesting takes on it, or it's just kind of notable because it's very queer? Yeah, I was constantly surprised by how how queer and and like explicit and and like you said unchanging so much of this was like all of the little like in all of the little ways that you can tell this was written by a trans person like it's exactly the same today like little little jokes little digs at like cis society little like it's it was incredible like this book is almost 30 years old yeah yeah. Um I was I was constantly blown away by that because I had not read this. I think I'd read the first Co- Coagula book like by itself, like I cuz I knew about the character at least, but I had not read any of this before and it was Yeah, it was staggering. I also read this like in the middle of the night cuz I couldn't sleep, so I might have been slightly delirious. I mean, I think that when you're slightly delirious, it's a good time to approach Doom Patrol because yeah. it's just kind of batshit. But uh, Coagula's introduction, one, I do love. There, this is this book is peppered with little references to, like, I think the names of like the sex ghosts that fly around. They abbreviate them to the SRS. Um, and she goes, "Did you just say SRS?" It's so good. Yeah. Um, the number of like little jokes and references you can very clearly tell this is written by a trans lady but one of the things that i think is the most like just loud and in your face statement of what this book is going to be moving forward is that in coagula's first appearance she fights a villain named the codpiece who is (laughs) a incel man in like an iron man costume with a massive like dick gun like there there isn't really a poetic way to say it he just yeah. has a big fucking utility dick gun that can shoot various types of liquids and also solids which he should probably go to a doctor about um but yeah kate introduces herself by uh seducing him and then melting his dick gun off with her ability to control the states of matter and he is like oh no i've been depowered i'm ruined this woman has ruined my dick gun my dick gun and it's delightful uh i think it is such a a massive statement about what the writer was intending to do and i think that like as far as like power goes uh there's something like incredibly badass about a trans woman just being like no 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 your your dick is really you should not be doing this to people with your dick put that away yeah and being able to destroy this it's so cool sort of a destruction of masculinity and i love that my personal headcanon is she melts off his entire dick. That seems violent for a superhero <laughs> book. I mean, it seems like my guess is that he had his actual dick inside there, so. He probably yeah. did. Yeah. Well, oh, he well, definitely did. Yeah. Oh, no. Oh, no. So let this be a lesson. If you are a dick-themed supervillain, do not put your dick inside of your dick gun. It will get melted off. Yeah. How true that is. <laughs> I want to move on. How are we going to segue out of that one? We're going to take an ad break. (laughs) Um, You know what? No, we're going to ads. We'll be back. You know what won't melt your dick off? These products and services. (laughs) Uh... 
my lovelies. Nerdycappy.com quality queer wear is a trans-owned and operated family apparel and accessories business in Portland, Oregon. As their name implies, they can drape you in affordable, gender-affirming fashion from head to toe and even offer a selection of home goods besides. So whether you're in the market for a dapper button-down or a dress with pockets, Nerdy Kepi will literally have you covered. You can get 10% off your order at checkout with the discount code TOTALLYTRANS. That's all one word, totally trans. Nerdy Kepi will also be at Emerald City Comic Con in Seattle from December 2nd through the 5th, and we'll have con-exclusive items and pricing, so come by and say hi. So remember, visit nerdykepi.com. That's N-E-R-D-Y-K-E-P-P-I-E dot com. Or use the easier way to remember, it has pockets.gay. Use discount code TOTALLYTRANS for 10% off at checkout. And thank you again for listening. Well, I have you, listeners. Remember to check out our Public store, which has... Two references to this run of Doom Patrol, one being the put a transsexual lesbian on the Supreme Court shirt or button, which I think you can also get a shirt. And also, actually, I don't think the X-Men shirt is currently up there, but it's on our Redbubble store, which is where we're putting the things that Disney sues us and tells us to take off of Tee Public. So remember to follow us on Patreon and check out our Tee Public store and our Redbubble store which will be linked in the description below, along with other important links for today's episode, such as to the Patreon and to the other half and to our new sponsor, nerdycuppy.com. Thank you. Okay, we are we are back now. So, because we're not going to acknowledge what we were talking about before the ad break at all. Uh, something I think is interesting is we have Rebus who... Uh, is this character that has either an intersex or non-binary or some identity sort of beyond the gender binary, but is alien. And very much like Morrison's view of aliens and the divine is very much like tied in together. But additionally, in this run, we have, I don't know how to pronounce this, the the Tyrios? Tyrios? Tiresias? Yeah, the The Tiresias. Thank you. That makes sense because it's like a Greek word so that follows so the Teresias who are um also beyond the gender binary but are viewed as much more like divine and magical and I thought that was really interesting do either of you have any thoughts on that and why that might be or is there like significance in comparing them I mean in the in the Greek myth it was it was a way for him that he was this soothsayer and wise person who the idea was that he needed to experience all that life had to offer so he had to experience what being a woman was like in addition to being what a man was like I mean that's basically the the deal um and he's the one you know who for instance you know told Oedipus like you're going to kill your mother and marry your your father well he told him you know he wasn't the one who told him it you can cut this out. Um, <laughs> he's the one who tried to warn Oedipus about the curse. He wasn't the one who made the prophecy. Oh, oh okay. I thought you were saying he commanded Oedipus, and I was like, oh, no. Oh, terrible. No. Jack, do um, you have any thoughts on this? Oh, sorry, Katie, I cut you off. Oh, no, no, that's it. No, it's fine. Oh, I think that it, um, well, uh, this is sort of just me thinking of this from the 
perspective of just knowing a lot about the sort of source material uh, and sort of the writers involved. Both Morrison and Rachel Pollack have a very interesting relationship to what I think a lot of people would consider like the divine and the occult. Um, And I think that they are from basically the same schools of thought in regards to a lot of this. So the Tiresias and Rebus have a tremendous amount in common. And I think that that is 100% intentional. And also, if not like a and a direct homage, certainly something of an homage. Um, but I do also think that like where Rebus was soft on direct comparisons and the use of like real life language, um, this is an instance of Rebus not literally, but effectively being used as a 100% like queer analog and direct tie to real world stuff. Yeah. Something else I think is interesting in that is while Rebus has, was kind of described using muddy language with like, like he, she, is it, was it a man? Was it a woman? It's unclear. Something I think is really cool is as characters' consciousness gets kind of raised from like Cliff and Kate going into the world of the Teresius, they come back and they start using neo pronouns for this Teresius named Elliot, who's like an angel figure is the best way I can describe it, mm-hmm. which I think is fascinating. I also see there being like a big, I can see how, how like the two different writers from their different perspectives on sort of magic and the divine to could come up with these different versions of a very similar character where um, Morrison is really into like psychedelics and um, like, Aliens and sci-fi as religion, sort of, uh, versus Pollock is, uh, before this, was famous for, like, tarot and studying tarot and doing, like, tarot readings. And this is, I think, giving these characters that are beyond gender a relation to, like, prophecy and seeing is, is like, important. I don't know. Do you you have thoughts on that? I'm not sure if it's mentioning something interesting too with this is um Puck comes up with the new origin myth around the world uh that involves the uh Teresius uh as a thing predating the world when there isn't language and everything is just free fl- free flowing concepts and there's not really borders between anything and everything is just constant change and nothing is permanent. And uh, it's not until one of the Teresius changes to become like a builder that like defines structure and then attempts to build a Tower of Babel to like make language permanent and nail everything down and create like binary choices. Does, uh, does sort of like the world take form, but also start to die. And um, what the world we are live in live in within this like cosmology put to get put forward by Pollock is the space between the two is a truce between like the Teresius's freedom to change and grow and the builder's structure that gives like the earth substance. And I just think that's kind of neat. I think there's an interesting little meta narrative here that like life is the thing between is also like not necessarily in the binary. It's the thing between structure and definition and freeform expression. What did you two think? Is this too galaxy brain? No, no. I think it's interesting. One of the things that I think is is really interesting in this is how they talk about the invention of language 
being a limiting force, like something that is that is destru- destructive instead of constructive uh, for the universe. Because contrast that with something like the Sandman, which is going on at the same time, which is all about stories and language and how that is such a, a powerful, constructive thing for the universe. And the universe was created out of stories in that uh, in that book, whereas this is much more about the ephemeral and the the magic, the right, the um, the unnameable, the unknowable. And when we started writing things down, much like the Bible story of the Tower of Babel, when we created language, we only divided ourselves instead of instead of creating more, which I think is interesting. Yeah, and another thing that uh, I find fascinating is sort of like the the builders. They constantly use this sort of language of like uh, I'm gonna describe this in a weird way like wage slaves in a cyberpunk dystopia where they are constantly like trying to enforce rules and law and very rigid structure um and they actually like sort of seem to experience like physical pain when they hear the way the teresius speak which is sort of just comes out in this like garbled like fire hose of letters which is like super fascinating and i think that it's interesting that like a queer person would write this and sort of that a queer person would be like, yeah, a rigid grammatical structure that sorts people into camps is actually really, really terrible and restrictive. And it absolutely like destroys a person's uh, ability to personally express themselves. Um, and, and that's sort of like a really important piece of the entire book. It's a really important piece of like what Coagula tries to teach to Cliff, which is like, it doesn't really matter how the world wants to define you. Like you, you are defined internally. You, you know what you are, you know who you are. Like you are the one who defines you and it doesn't really matter what the world says because the world's always going to be wrong about it. Yeah. And the, the relationship that develops between Kate and Cliff, I think is super fascinating because there's so many parallels uh, between them. And in a moment I want to talk about like, why I think Doom Patrol succeeds here in a way that, like, the X-Men kind of never can. Um, But where Cliff can so easily be read as a metaphor for dysphoria or dissociation or a non-binary identity or a trans man, where Cliff literally, in Morrison's run, strips naked at some point to be like, look at me, I'm not what you think of as a man. I don't, I'm not that. And is trying to express that he's like more or outside of this binary. When Coagula comes along, she makes that explicit and she takes that subtext and makes it like super text. It's giant sky ridden letters. Um, and those those parallels continue where she comforts Cliff in his dysphoria and dissociation. She gives him a pep talk about like, hey, you are you because you are. Like, you are who you think you are. You you are a man because you say you're a man. That's what divides you from a machine. And um, I just think it's neat. It continues when they go. Eventually, the two of them um, do what can only be described as fuck magic. Oh, yeah. To be combined into a single being and become a Teresa. Ter- can we say it? I think they call them like one of Ther- the Teresias. Yeah, they call them Teresiads at some point. I think as yeah. well. And but yeah, Teresias is the is the original word. Yeah, but become a Teresias uh, by combining their two bodies and consciousnesses 
into a single being and like go into this time outside of time uh, or a state of like timelessness. And in there, they have flashbacks to the operations that in some way created them that calls back to both Cliff's conflict with Niles Calder, who literally a couple issues before this moment said like, it's funny that you think your body is your body when I made it. Um, we then have that language mirrored in the surgeon that performed Coagula's uh, SRS saying like, oh, I am being the the god that made her basically, which is a concept we talk about in the Little Mermaid episode actually is the concept of like the god surgeon as this figure who tries to take ownership of like a trans woman's body and a trans woman's identity. And they just get tied together in this beautiful way. And I just love it. Um, it's big, like T for T energy really yeah. in the best possible way to the point where when they finally re-enter time, they don't want to separate initially and become two separate beings. They kind of want to stay as one, but they have to separate because they can't use their powers together. They need to like exist as separate beings. Um, I just loved it. So what did yeah. you two think? I said a lot. Um, I um, feel like it bears the- mentioning that, that the robot has... Oh. The robot has big tits. Yeah, the robot has say. big tits. That's, that's what I was going to say, yeah. Um, you, you, can, you can go, by the way, if you had something to say. I was just going to... That was it. Probably. Just robot tits. That's all I was going to say. Oh. oh, okay. Just robot tits. One of the things that I like really, really love about this is how it actually just explicitly uses a lot of the language that would have been available to queer people at the time. There yeah. is a really beautiful scene where Cliff sacrifices uh, his body to protect kate from like basically a rocket and it like blows him to pieces and she runs out to grab his head um and bring it back inside and niles is like all right it's time to get cliff another body so he can get back out there into the fight and cliff just sort of has this breakdown where he's like fuck no you're not gonna just put me in another shitty robot body i'm so sick and tired of niles calder being the one who gets to define my existence i'm so sick and tired of being beholden to you as the person who has sort of made me yeah i'm not going back out there i'm not going to fight and coagula's like come on cliff we're gonna go have a conversation in the other room and they go sit down and cliff basically explains that like he hates not being able to go out in public without people knowing that he is robot man he hates that people look at him and point and laugh because he is like a big giant orange piece of metal um and coagula actually explicitly says yeah like the thing that you're talking about cliff it's it's like a real thing like it's 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 called being able to pass and like that's that's like a real struggle and and like you're not weird for wanting that for yourself you're not weird for wanting to be able to go out in public without people being able to clock you basically and i just want to interject for one second Literally, what she says is, yeah, I know it's called passing and explains it not in like, there's no metaphor here. She's breaking through the wall of metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. And I just want to say that explicitly because a lot of times on this podcast, we're like just dealing a metaphor and this is just on the page. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. continue. Oh, no, that I, that's what I was saying is that sort of like what I find so fascinating about it is that it is literally on the page. Like you can read because of the nature of like superhero comics and because of the nature of like how many people will have their hands in these stories at any given like decade um it's really easy to read a lot of what you want to read into and uh, any character pretty much but like with cliff it is 
very very explicit like coagula actually is like walking him through this uh his experience as being a brain trapped in a robot body with her experience as a trans woman who transitioned medically and publicly and socially it's really fucking cool yeah and it goes on from there where not only does that do they have that conversation but he also gets to the point where he says the thing is i like being different does that make sense and she says yeah cliff it makes a lot of sense like they're 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 they've gone from discussion of passing to trans positivity, like in one conversation. Yeah. And it's just it is it's it's explicit. Love and it. I actually I actually love that part of the conversation, too, because like I think for a lot of people um, who uh, are queer and who are like sort of like d- d- non. Uh, oh, fuck. People who uh, don't conform to like gender norms uh, or even particularly uh, gender or who are trans, they they don't think that the bad thing is not passing. They generally tend to think that the bad part of it is that people treat you like shit. Yeah. Um, and that is like sort of what Cliff is saying. He's like, yeah, I hate being treated like shit. I hate being gawked at. I hate being like a fucking monkey in a zoo for somebody. Um, I like being different. I don't want to be ridiculed for being different and uh i don't know i just i love that i love seeing that on the page in a comic book it is something that like uh is just tremendously important to me as a reader uh, especially in terms of like representation to see like a trans writer uh writing a trans character and her superpower in this moment is being trans like it is a strength it is how she is counseling this actual superhero how to get through his his problems so that he can go back out and do superheroics. It's objectively fucking cool. Yeah. And it, it also bears mentioning, I think, that Cliff, at, on two different occasions, rejects having a, quote, normal body. Like, the, yeah. the fox man in, like, 71 or 72 offers to, like, put him in, in a human body again, and he rejects it. And then at the end, like, the I call him Conan O'Brien. I don't think he has a name... Um, but he looks like Conan O'Brien again, offers to like give them each like their own perfect bodies. And they, and they reject that. It's the contract is the character you're yeah. describing yes. who has the ability to make a deal with anyone. Yeah. Um, and offers both Kate and Cliff, like cis heteronormative bodies. Yeah. And they're both like, yeah, we don't need you. that. Yeah. 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 We don't need that. We just need to be us. Yeah. Yeah. Something else I think is really fascinating with their bodies is the way that there's really deliberate, obvious parallels drawn between both Cliff and Kate's bodies and the divine. And we explicitly see this like Cliff, when he has his new body built, Oh yeah. Has like a crown of thorns uh, made of, it's like made in bolts, but it's a crown of thorns. And he has like a cross cast into his chest and is, is Jesus basically. And then Kate at one point, she is getting like sucked into this, like, portal thing which it's not it's not a good thing but um uh she is shown nude but with like a halo of light also a little detail i really like in this art which in addition i just love the art and the in this last arc by i wrote down who it was i love it so much it's ted mckeever's art is so perfect but like coagula's breasts like look like my breasts like they're not there's something about just, like, the way she's drawn on this panel. It's, like, page nine of, I guess, issue... Would that be 79? 70. Yeah, I think it's the last one, yeah. Or, yeah, 79, sorry. 79. 
as like this really beautiful figure. And then when they're combined, they're a whole other like divine being. Yeah. And it's a really good celebration of like queerness and transness as divinity and like having its own magic to it. I'm just All okay. Right. I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, I have other questions. Sorry, I'm just so stoked. I um went way too in on writing notes for this one. <laughs> and this is like my second time reading this arc in the past couple of months because I read Jack's copies right before I moved to Omaha because Jack lent them to me because she's a huge cutie. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Where was I? So... Let's talk about the X-Men for a second. Yeah. Yeah. One of my one of my favorite things that this thing does is really stick it to Xavier. Um, oh, yeah. Because <laughs> Xavier is such a massive fucking creep. And they, at least in the X-Men books that I read, they very rarely call him out on being a massive fucking creep. And in yeah. this, the Xavier stand-in is just constantly called out for being... Yeah. Like a horrible person and like using people. And like, so when Coagula goes into the, they, they even say like, it's not some kind of room of danger. That would be crazy. It's just a testing chamber. Like he starts like fucking with her and she's like, what are you doing? Stop it. This isn't, this is wildly inappropriate and like, like will not play his Xavier game, which I love. Yeah, and I actually really like in that moment in particular, George and Marion, they also give him a bunch of shit for it. Yeah. They're like, what the fuck are you doing, Niles, you dirty old pervert? Get everybody, the fuck out of here. Everybody hates him. I don't know why they let him hang around. So for a little bit of backstory for a lot of people who won't have read a lot of the Morrison stuff, the reason why everybody hates Niles is because he is a huge piece of shit. It was revealed over the course of the Morrison run that Niles Calder was actually not just the person who sort of orchestrated a lot of the Doom Patrol's current like existence, uh, but he is responsible for their accidents. Like So for Cliff Steele, who was a race car driver who got into a car accident and the only thing that was left was his brain, it is revealed that not only did Niles build his robot body, Niles was also responsible for the accident, period. So the reason why everybody hates Niles is because um, I think much like a sort of, well, it's the explicit opposite thing with Xavier, where they're unwilling to show his like ruthlessness as like being uh, harmful to his colleagues and to his friends. Um, Niles Calder is just an asshole like at all times he is i think a good representation of what a smart manipulator is realistically as opposed to sort of like oh yes i am a smart person with no compunctions about manipulating other people but i like you guys you're my friends uh niles calder like he's he's such a such a son of a bitch (laughs) yeah Yeah. well and then so the parallels between the x-men and doom patrol also aren't a new thing like it was immediately obvious the in like issue number one, it's Niles Calder who's a professor in a wheelchair, and his weird group of strange heroes in jumpsuits going on wild Silver Age adventures. And it's like Jack, oh, you're raising your little hand. Yeah, yeah, because I love this this anecdote. Doom Patrol actually released before the X Men, and there was a legal battle that ensued following it because the creators of the Doom Patrol were actually like they stole our shit for the X Men. The X-Men stole the Doom Patrol from us. It was ultimately 
ruled that that's probably not what happened, that comics writers at the time were just throwing stuff at the walls and hoping it would stick. But um, yeah, technically the Doom Patrol did exist first. So a lot of these little parallels where they are like poking fun at the X-Men are, uh, I find uh, I find them to be sort of like well-earned, I guess. Um, because, yeah. well, one of the things about the X-Men is that it has never like ever i think sort of dedicated itself to what the mutant metaphor actually is one of the major flaws of the mutant metaphor is that anybody who is reading the x-men can look at it and be like this struggle is about me which is good if you're a queer person or a person of color and you're reading it and you're seeing yourself in that struggle but it's also really bad if you're like a white supremacist and you're reading it and you're seeing yourself in that struggle um so the thing about the doom patrol is that they've pretty much always been a metaphor for queerness within the dc universe which i think is a major strength the unlike what this story uh talks about at its core the structure that gives Doom Patrol form is actually what makes it so much more powerful of a story than the X-Men. Well, and you, I think you really hit the nail on the head is just making where the mutant metaphor, and we've talked about this several times on the podcast, because we talked about it with Jay Edden in a bonus episode, and then we talked about it with Reverend Remington Johnson, and then we talked about it two weeks ago with Magdalene Visaggio. This is doing it right. This is breaking past the metaphor and making the subtextual explicit. And I love it. And the ways in which they're able to pull off these stories and these characters are just so profound. And it's amazing to kind of actually see yourself on the page, not just project yourself into the page. Yeah. Yeah. Katie, do you have any thoughts on it? Any more thoughts on this? I don't think so. So something else to talk about is everyone's relationship with bodies, which goes beyond Cliff and Kate in this. Uh, Niles Calder is currently just a head. And when, which, when you think about the fact that like, oh, he made a robot body for Cliff. Why does it make you a robot for for himself? He just doesn't care. He's like, I am secure being a man. I am just a head in a, in a pail of ice. Um, I think he literally says, I have the actual quote. It's like, uh, what need do I have for a body? Additionally, Dorothy, I'm stealing this talking point exactly from Jack. Do you want to explain? Oh, oh, I just specifically wanted to point out that there is a great scene in this run where Cliff comes in and he, uh, this is where I mentioned Cliff like lashes out at Coagula and uh, Coagula's basically response to being told like that her transness is like weird is she's like, okay, well, if a penis is what defines a man, Cliff, where's your fucking penis? And Niles, where's your fucking penis? And also where's George's fucking penis? None of you guys have penises. None of you even have have fucking bodies yeah um which is fascinating because like literally everybody in this book has some weird gender shit going on or some weird like sexuality shit going on dorothy for example she's i believe like a young teenager in this she's 14 yeah so she's like going through puberty in a house full of weirdos um, and she's like sort of struggling to relate to growing up, and she's the only one who has a body. Not so to nobody can sex like ghosts. sort of Yeah, exactly. Also, there are fucking sex ghosts everywhere. So like there's there are no role models, I guess, for her to sort of like be coached by or for them to help her with her shit. Um and like George and Marion, they read very much as like a 
they are a heterosexual couple, but they both are incredibly queer in their presentation and their understanding of queer issues. And it's just fascinating to see even like Niles Calder, who's like the giant asshole in the room, who has his own odd struggles with his body and his sort of gender. There's a great issue that's a standalone that's about just him, where he is dreaming about being a child, where he was bullied for being small and weak by literally everybody. And so he sort of like finds solace in the fact that he's smarter than everybody else. And that's sort of like the the strength that he has, where he's like, I am a mind, uh, and my mind yeah. is my most powerful feature. And so as long as I have my mind, I am me. Um, it's really cool. It's just super cool. Cage, do you have any thoughts on that? I don't think so. <laughs> okay, that's fine. Uh, I'm just trying to include everyone in the discussion, because... Otherwise, I'll just talk with Jack endlessly because I love to talk with Jack and all I want to do is talk with Jack endlessly about gender and sex and comic books. But, um, <laughs> um, hi. And I am incapable of shutting up. If you ask me a single question about comic books, I will tell you the entire history of the comic books. So, I mean, that's all I've ever wanted. <laughs> is it getting hot in here? <laughs> oh, no. Um, um, any hoot. Uh, I'm all flustered. Um, uh, gender comic books. Uh, the Pentagon is covering up the Tower of Babel in an incredibly saying the quiet part loud moment. Yeah. Um, I also love that, like, the bad guys, like, foot soldiers are called scabs. Um, so they are, like, very much, like, the sort of, like, yes, we enforce, like, society's capitalist nonsense as well. It's fascinating. Um, I think that it's very, very, very clear that a leftist trans woman wrote this uh, from from every single word in this book. Yeah. Yeah, Bill Clinton makes an appearance. It's very... It is simultaneously incredibly of the 90s and also incredibly forward thinking at the same time yeah well when if you explain what's going on under the pentagon and why we brought that up and now jumped into this tangential discussion um, uh yeah so basically okay. no no go ahead. oh jack you can go oh no you can't guess i talk no, a you lot go, you guessed no you go you guess okay so basically uh the 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 villainous plot that's going on here is that the pentagon is constructing a new tower of babel with the builders which i think it's it's interesting to note that one of the primary antagonists one of the builders dresses in like a police and military uniform for the entire time he's on panel and so there is basically this this plot to recreate this Tower of Babel and to enforce a rigid structure on the world to sort of remove a fluidity and freedom of choice that allows life to sort of exist in the way that we know it to exist. And basically, the United States government is working on that beneath the Pentagon, and they are covering it up like some sort of terrible conspiracy theory, even going so far as to brainwash the president of the United States, who is a Democrat and also susceptible to falling into the same traps. It's really fascinating. It's very politically savvy, I think. But yeah, so the the villain is capitalism, and the villain is cis-heteronormativity. It also uh, is worth mentioning that the tower goes down instead of up. I mean, it's, yeah, some sort of inverted yeah, like yeah. Uh, tower-less object. Yeah. Yeah. Are we going to say that aloud? Or just... Well, I mean, the thing, like, yeah, it's, well, I mean, they even talk, they, it, again, just where everything that we ever watch is, or watch or read or whatever is an allegory. In this one, 
we literally have Kate explaining to Cliff, like, what an inverted penis is. Um, yeah. So, like, I think that the, it's, yeah, that, that's close enough, I think. Oh, no, we can just say it explicitly, though. Yeah, it's yeah. clearly, it's, it's, it's just a cheeky reference, again, yeah. to just, like, bottom surgery and some sort of, like, new creation of definition, right? Like, initially, the creation yeah. of rigidity and definition was, like, a large phallic object and a new creation of definition is the inversion of that. And I think that's very fascinating. It's a really interesting take. How this story sort of wraps up is after they work with the the Teresius Teresius uh to stop the builders. The Teresias are then like, oh, now we're going to not just unmake the Tower of Babel. We're going to unmake all that is solid and all that is defined. Yeah. And Coagula has to save the day. Do either of you want to explain how Coagula saves the day, Katie? I don't remember. Um, I read it last night at like four in the morning. Okay, I can, I can do it. Or Jack, do you want to explain? No, I'll let you explain it. I explained the last bit. Okay, so... Coagula ends up saving the day by basically doing the the like the the big heartfelt speech at the end and explaining that even though there is stuff that is solid and feels permanent in this world, there's still choice and change and growth and that life can only exist in this medium ground. And while there is beauty and magic and the undefined and the timeless and the breaking of boundaries. There's still expression in language and there's expression in your own body and being able to make the concrete as long as you allow for it to like change and grow and heal. And I just think that's beautiful and such a uniquely trans take. And I think it's also really interesting where Rachel Pollock is saying, like, yes, there's, like, beauty and infinity in, in the undefined and in the non-binary and in things greater than gender and devoid of gender. But her being also, like, but I'm a woman and that's important to me. And I'm a woman who, like, formed herself and made herself yeah. in the image of, like, what she saw as beautiful and wanted to be. And there's value in that still. And I just think that's neat thoughts from you two yeah i i mean again i mentioned this earlier but like i think so often in a lot of media that involves trans people especially our existence is seen as something of a tragedy which yeah. is something that this book very much does not do it's also something that a lot of morrison's work does not do where the transness of the individual characters is a strength it is a positivity and in kate's case it's like literally a fucking superhero or like a superhero power yeah like the thing that allows her to deliver this impassioned speech is her experience being trans. The thing that allowed her to help Cliff get back into the fight was her being trans. The thing that sort of like rallies basically everyone is ultimately like the lessons that she sort of has like learned over the course of transitioning. And I think it's like, it's really fascinating. It's not something you see often in media now. And, and this is 30 years ago, which is upsetting. People who create media these days should get their shit together. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, uh, no, it's, it's, I, uh, there's not really another word for it. It's beautiful. 
Yeah. Trans joy and trans beauty is what saves the day. Yeah. 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 And I think that's fucking awesome. So before we move to our final questions, there's one last question that we've been kind of doing every episode for like half a season. I want to keep doing, but I'm not sure if we can do this time. How would y'all rewrite it to be explicitly trans? Can we? I feel like it's already explicitly trans. It's already trans and it's already pretty good. Like it's not, it doesn't. It's kind of perfect. It doesn't need to like, be modernized. perfect. Yeah. I mean, like yeah. this, yeah. this is something that could be written today. Like it's not, it's not very dated aside from, you know, a few like language things, like the, the meaning of everything, like the way that, the way that things interact, the, the explanations even um, are, yeah. are still accurate for the most part. Um, I mean, if I was going to rewrite it to be even more explicitly trans, I mean, I guess I would, like, make Cliff AFAB prior to the accident. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, I mean, the the whole Cliff's entire existence uh, sort of is, um, I don't know, it's, it's, it's real hard to read it as anything other than being trans, especially with, like, the parallel of Coagula's experience and them sort of, like, taking every single step of this journey together. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't really think that you need to. I think that it's yeah. certainly the most explicit, uh, that a superhero comic has ever been about something like this. And I think there's something beautiful added by looking at both the metaphor for transness and the explicit transness. And in the same way that the story has all of these parallels, it's drawing and creating binaries. And it's saying like, here is metaphor and here is explicit transness. and they are the same and they are completely different and the borders between them are both powerful and important but then also meaningless i think that's i think there's like added value kind of by keeping cliff metaphorical katie did you have a question i'm so sorry oh no i was just gonna ask like i have i only watched the first episode of the tv show like how how trans is robot man on the tv show so it's interesting um not very, but yeah, kind of. Yeah. Um, so the the big scene that we talked about, like from issue number thirty in the Morrison stuff that we perused, um, that scene does take place. Um, it's like, in fact, I think even more explicit because like Black Annis like actually like drags her claws down Cliff's junk and like taps on him, and it makes like a dung 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 noise, like almost as if for comedic effect. And Cliff's like, see just a robot body i'm not a man i'm a brain in a jar so i think that like it's it's still getting there i guess um they have they've barely sort of left the morrison stuff uh on that on the tv show um and there's still plenty of time for them to like get into some of the weird queerness of rachel pollock's run but the show generally i think exercises its sort of queerness in other ways just about everybody in that show is also very queer yeah. As 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 a good Doom Patrol adaptation should be. Yeah. Um Yeah. Look forward to who they cast as Coagula. Yeah. Yeah. Who would y'all cast as Coagula? Let's well, all I'm assuming Jean cast that. I'm assuming you want to cast Eve Lindley because you want to cast her in everything, right? How dare you be completely correct? Yeah, 100%. Absolutely. I think she'd do great. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna be a, a basic bitch and cast the only blonde trans woman that I can think of, oh, no. which is Jamie Clayton. Yeah, you scooped me. It's the only blonde <laughs> trans actor I know, too. Yeah, I mean, anybody can dye their hair blonde. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's fair. 
She's also too, she's also, I mean, I don't really know how old Coagula is supposed to be, but like Jamie Clayton's in her 40s, right? Yeah. And I just yeah. imagined God, her being a lot younger look. than that. Yeah, someone used to tell me I looked like an older Jamie Clayton. She's <laughs> like fully 15 years older than me. Yikes. And I died. Yeah, it hurt a lot. Do you, do you want me to beat them up for you? Yes, please. Okay, I'll, I'll be right back. <laughs> so... Because I am a huge nerd, I've made a four-point scale for us to rate things on. It goes from one, headcanon, things that are just trans because we want them to be, two, major gender stuff, lots of gender things happening, but not necessarily trans gender things happening, three, all but explicit, literally the only things missing is the use of the labels that'd be appropriate for the time, and four, literally trans. It is a literally trans story with trans elements described in the trans language of the time. Jack, because you're our incredibly cute guest this week. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't normally sexually harass the guests. I mean, um, it's not really sexual harassment if you're dating me and I'm fine with it. Yeah, Jack's my girlfriend. Yeah. Um, this is nepotism. Oh, um, no. Where would you put it? Well, one, I thought my merit was why I'm here, but nepotism makes a lot more sense in retrospect. Um, No, it's your merit. I love your podcast, and uh, you also wrote this script. So, thank you. That's fair. Um, You're welcome. Literally anytime. But also, the answer is literally trans. Like, even if this isn't a trans story about Cliff being literally trans, um, there is so much in this story that is, I mean, like like I said, it is like the, the queerest comic that I have ever read period. And that might not mean a lot, but I mean, I literally read hundreds of comics every week. So like this, it's, it's, there's so much there, the language of the time, like even fuck so so much language that's used in this, that is still language that we use today to talk about queerness, like the comments about passing and a lot of the sort of like way that Coagula speaks um, with her impassioned speeches about identity and um, sort of like internal identity and stuff. It's all, it's all, it's all there. It's yeah. Yeah. I'm just going to give it a four. Yeah. It's um, I agree. Yeah. It's explicit. Like um, the fact that me reading this was, I was constantly like so shocked that it was something that was written for a main, I mean, I guess it's not, it wasn't super mainstream, but I mean, it's still, DC is like, you know, and uh, that it was written for a mainstream audience, and it was written in 1993, just, I was so shocked by it, so often, and so much of it is still applicable today. This is the first time I've seen, like, a character written like this in a comic book at all, much less something that happened 30 years ago, so I, 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 I for me, it can't be anything other than explicit yeah this is explicitly literally trans in so many ways like i feel like even if coagula wasn't there like if they just took out kate it's like this is still literally trans but by including coagula it becomes importantly trans and profoundly trans and it does the thing that i feel like we've asked everything else to do and it did it like 30 years ago which really means everyone else needs to get their shit together and do something yeah it's what it's wild that she's not around anymore like i read that apparently they killed her off in 2002 yeah what the fuck yeah the person who basically came along after rachel pollock left the book uh killed and this is uh i mean i hate to say it but like 
uh, one of the primary strengths of Super Comics is also its greatest weakness, which is to say that there are so many hands in the cookie jar at any given time that somebody can just come along and undo everything that somebody has created, because once you create it and give it to the universe, it's it's not yours anymore. And that sucks, especially with something like this, where you have a... I mean, I'm going to just go ahead and say this is one of my favorite stories, so I'm very obviously biased, but you have a perfectly crafted narrative doing a thing, which is trans people creating trans characters, uh, which is something that people always tell us to go do. Um, and then, of course, she releases it into the universe, and the next person to come along is like, well, oh, boy, howdy, I really liked it when Elastigirl stretched a lot, and kills everybody off and takes it back to a Silver Age Doom Patrol. Which but I mean, sucks. how many infinite crises have there been since that? I mean, they any they could bring her back. They, and the, yeah, they're yeah. not wrong. Yeah, it's in fact wild that they haven't. Um, they'd have to find someone good to write her. But also, we know so many. Like Jack and I personally know multiple like trans comic yeah. book writers. Yeah. Or Jack could just write it. Hire Jack to write Coagula into Doom Patrol. Yeah, I would love to write a Doom Patrol book, let me tell you. Um, I would write the shit out of a Doom Patrol book. You heard it here first. (laughs) Putting that into the universe. Start the campaign. Start the campaign. So, Jack, do you have things you'd like to plug? Yeah, I have a podcast that I write. The Other Half, a G.I. Joe podcast. We do issue-by-issue issue sort of analysis of Larry Hama's G.I. Joe from Marvel in the 90s, or 80s, excuse me. And quite frankly, if you want to listen to me be like a just completely exasperated bag of snark, you should definitely listen to that. If you want to listen to my much more evenly keeled co-workers who are very knowledgeable with their uh, sort of insider experience with the industry, they're also on there too, and I like them a lot. You can find us on Facebook at Facebook uh, slash other half GI Joe. And uh, we're also on Spotify and Apple podcasts and stuff like that. Yeah. If you want to just listen to me be snarky, you can find me on Twitter slash. Oh God. Am I still Barbariana? I believe you are. Yeah. But yeah, that is my personal Twitter. If you really just want to listen to me talk about comic books and occasionally be, as uh, Ada would so quaintly put it, a wife guy. Um, yeah. My handle on Twitter is at Barbary underscore Anna, like Barbarian and Anna smashed together as if I were some sort of Theresius creature, um, divine transness included. And yeah, that's that's where you can find me. Great. I would like to find you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of Totally Trans, Searching for the Trans Canon. We have a Patreon that can be found at patreon.com backslash totally trans. If you back us at $3 or more per month, you can access our bonus episodes. The most recent of which is us talking with today's wonderful guest, Jack, who has a last name as well. Oh yeah, Clyde. I didn't introduce myself. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Jacqueline Clyde. The most recent of which is us talking with today's wonderful guest, Jacqueline Clyde. And if you back us at $2 or more per month, you can access all of our episodes one week early. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And rate and review us on Apple Podcasts because we live in a cyberpunk nightmare oligopoly. Join us next week when we will not be here because this is the last episode of the season. Uh, we have a Christmas special coming up at Christmas. It will be very sad. You should you should listen it's gonna to it. It's going to be so sad. We're all going to cry. Totally Trans, Searching for the Trans Canon is co-hosted by me, Katie Coleman, who can be found on Twitter at Katie of the Lake. And co-hosted by me, Ada Short, 
who can be found on Twitter at the Ada Rhodes. That is the underscore A-D-A underscore R-H-O-D-E-S. And co-hosted by Henry Giardina, who you can find on Twitter at Punk Groucho and at Into Magazine, where he is the editor. All quotes and audio clips are being used under fair use. I think this use is pretty fair, don't you? And our season three theme music is a mystery only to be revealed by the passage of time and the magic of editing. Until next week, keep searching. Just robot tits. Just robot tits. The robot has big tits. And I think that's fucking awesome. If you ask me a single question about comic books, I will tell you the entire history of the comic books. So. I mean, that's all I've ever wanted. (laughs) Is it getting hot in here? I just, I'm going to feel so dumb if I just got this. Your name, is your name a pun on Jekyll and Hyde? (gasps) I just got that. We have known each other for three years almost oh my god that's not true we've known each other for that's two not years true. we've known each other for like two years but we've dated for like half of that and this is really embarrassing for me you think it's embarrassing for you i'm your girlfriend